It's exhausting living in my mind, and that is certainly where I live. The thoughts, the feelings, the habits and dispositions, these are ingrained through long use. A lot depends on your outlook, upon the way you frame your life and your problems, but what if you suck at framing things constructively? I don't know why I don't know how to relax, I don't know how to control my affective psychology, and I seem to have forgotten how to fall asleep. I think like I think and I feel the way I feel. I'm not sure if the Freudian approach to psychoanalysis is effective, but introspection, it seems to me, is like using a witching rod to find water or oil in the earth. It's a blind process and it doesn't work too well. Know thyself? Well, there are at least two senses of knowing. I'm plenty familiar with myself. I know what it is like to be who I am. But as for the processes underlying who I am, the conceptions and misconceptions, your guess is as good as mine. Gaze at the night sky. Find a star. Look at the star. Are you seeing a star? Can you really see light years away? First of all, let's put to rest the idea that when you see an object, that you are really seeing the object itself. An object is not something which can be seen. Visibility is not a property of physical objects in the world. Yet we see, and I am not claiming that we are all suffering from delusions. There is an object across from the room from you now. You point your eyes in its direction, and light from that direction excites photoreceptors. Not only do you not see objects in the world, you do not see the light which reflects from them either. Photoreceptor cells in your retina signal to other cells in your retina. And after a few neuronal steps, the retinal ganglion cells which project into your brain fire action potentials along their axons which are all bundled in the optic nerve like an underground telephone cable. The images that you see, whether your eyes are wide open or whether you're having a vivid dream, are produced in the darkness of the cranium. So what is happening when you look at a distant star? All the action begins when photons interact with your retina. How do the cells of your retina know whether the photons have traveled there over a vast distance or a tiny one? They don't, of course. Processing in the visual areas of the cerebral cortex is responsible for everything we visually perceive. You might protest that what you see is simply there, in the world where you see it. Not only do you not see the world, I would argue, but the star you are looking at isn't even in the place where you see it. That light you are looking at was emitted years ago, perhaps thousands of years ago or longer. If you could see the actual star, it would be located somewhere else. But even if the light traveled instantly, which it certainly does not, you still couldn't see the star or the light which it emits, because you can't see such things as stars and lights. A word about dark matter. What makes it dark? Quite simply, it doesn't interact with photons. Here's a short statement from Stephen Hawking in The Universe in a Nutshell. He wrote, quote, Various cosmological observations strongly suggest that there should be much more matter in our galaxy than we see. The most convincing of these observations is that stars on the outskirts of spiral galaxies like our own Milky Way orbit far too fast to be held in their orbits only by the gravitational attraction of all the stars that we observe. We have known since the 1970s that there is a discrepancy between the observed rotational velocities of stars in the outer regions of spiral galaxies and the orbit velocities that one would expect according to Newton's laws from the distribution of the visible stars in the galaxy. This discrepancy indicates that there should be much more matter in the outer parts of spiral galaxies." Unquote. So there is something out there which we cannot see. All that means is that there is some substance in the universe which fails to interact with electromagnetic radiation, such as visible light and radio waves. 
Our eyes are like telescopes equipped to the brain that pick up a limited spectrum of electromagnetic waves. They evolve this way to take advantage of an environment bathed in sunlight. The brain can use that signal to create an image of the world. Is it any great surprise that there are features of the universe which are invisible to us? We already live surrounded by invisible radio waves and microwaves and so on. Strictly speaking, we cannot see anything in the world. It's just that the body is equipped with cellular devices for taking in streams of data. Whatever the stream of data, the brain is, has evolved to produce useful perceptual experiences. Dark matter is dark because we are not fitted with devices that can detect it. Maybe there are no such devices that nature could have discovered anyway. Regardless, in the sense of invisibility, outside of consciousness itself, the whole universe is dark. I said you can't see such things as stars and light. You can see stars and light, mind you, just not the real stars that exist out there in space or the real light which comes from them. What you see is a product of activity in the brain and nothing more. The visual brain produces the image of a distant point of whitish light. Using information cues coming from both eyes, size and distance are inferred and presented to you as the real thing. You just see what you were given to see. Before the era of telescopes and modern astronomy, nobody could have suspected that stars are as far away as they are. The distances are, well, astronomical. What if we knew, as a matter of fact, that stars were only a few miles away? Suppose they turned out to be something other than giant earth-dwarfing objects, but something much smaller and more local. How would this change our perception of them? Would we literally see them as closer? The question I wish to explore today is, how much do concepts determine our perceptions? I lie in the dark, listening to a guided meditation. Sam Harris's voice tells me to focus on my body. He instructs me to pay close attention to the vibration, the heat, the pressure, whatever I perceive. He tells me to let go of the form of my body as I know it, to lose the shape of the fingers and so on, to just allow the body to resolve into a cloud of sensation. If this is difficult, then pay closer attention to the sensations I'm having. Well, Sam, it is difficult, and I'm trying. The trouble is that I cannot escape the foreknowledge of my body's form. I'm too close to the problem to see it, or in this case to feel it, as if it were new. I'm like an old dog being asked to learn a new trick. This seems like a case in which a familiar concept, the proportions and features of my body, is interfering with my raw perceptions. I cannot have direct access to my own sensations all by themselves. Having lived for as long as I have, the brain has been rewired to entangle the concepts I have learned from experience with the perceptions that enter through my senses. Yet I know that the body concept is capable of being disrupted because I know about the rubber hand illusion. I have also had experiences on psilocybin in which my body proportions are out of whack. This suggests that I'm capable of experiencing what Sam Harris is trying to get me to achieve, but I just haven't figured out how to get past my mind's concepts and pay direct attention to my sensations. In his book, Hallucinations, Oliver Sacks wrote, quote, Embodiment seems to be the surest thing in the world, the one irrefutable fact. We think of ourselves as being in our bodies, and of our bodies as belonging to us and us alone. Thus, we look on the world with our own eyes, walk with our own legs, shake hands with our own hands. We have a sense, too, that consciousness is in our own head. It has long been assumed that the body image or body schema is a fixed and stable part of one's awareness, perhaps in part hardwired and largely sustained and affirmed by the continuing proprioceptive feedback from joint and muscle receptors regarding the position and movement of one's limbs. 
There was general astonishment, therefore, when Matthew Botvinnik and Jonathan Cohen showed in 1998 that a rubber hand under the right circumstances could be mistaken for one's own. If a subject's real hand is hidden under a table while the rubber hand is visible before him and both are stroked in synchrony, then the subject has the convincing illusion, even though he knows better, that the rubber hand is his and that the sensation of being stroked is located in this inanimate, though lifelike, object." Unquote. Consider also phantom limbs. It is nearly universal that when an arm or a leg is amputated, the patient experiences a compelling illusion that the limb is still there. Not only is it felt to be there, the patient is able to move it like a real limb. The case of phantom limbs is a good demonstration of what I've been trying to convey about consciousness. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what is really happening in the wider world. Consciousness is a product of events in the brain. The removal of the limb naturally removes the nerves and receptors as well. But the somatosensory cortex, which has for the life of the person corresponded to that limb, remains intact. Over a lifetime, a concept of the arm or leg is taken hold in the cortex. For the sake of our discussion today, phantom limbs are a case of a concept being even stronger than perception in the formation of conscious contents. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that perception and conception are not distinct kinds of qualia. Sensations seem quite different from thoughts or feelings, but how different are they? What about hearing? Like vision, all of the action which leads to hearing sounds which correspond to pressure waves going, going about in the real world occurs at the eardrum. This little apparatus is really nothing more than a musical instrument. It vibrates in various ways as pressure waves land on it. Not all that different from hitting a drum or plucking a string. A plainly physical event is happening to the eardrum. This results in the movement of hair cells in the inner ear which signal to other neurons which send action potentials into the thalamus and onto the auditory cortex. All of the sound we experience is a product of the brain, not of pressure waves. Pressure waves, what we call sound waves, do not sound like anything at all. Suppose something occurs at a distance, which we can hear. Suppose a car rumbles by outside. All of the action begins at the eardrum, not outside on the street. So how do we hear sounds at a distance? This is a product of brain processing, and it necessarily imposes concepts upon the sounds we hear. Just as we seem to see a star in the sky, we seem to hear a car as it rumbles by. That's quite an accomplishment given just two drum-like instruments attached to our heads. The localization of sounds at their sources is remarkably accurate, but it is done by means of evolved neural arrangements. Just like when I try to go to let go of my body concept and meditate on the raw sensations, I've tried to hear sounds as occurring right at my head, but I can't seem to get this done. I always seem to hear the sounds as coming from somewhere over there or down there. I hear a tiny meowing from down there by my feet, and I'll be damned if there isn't a kitten there. It's obvious, it's obvious enough why these systems are so effective and compelling. They evolve to represent reality to us. Ironically, though, they hide reality and give us something more useful. Reality is that the meowing sound is a product of my temporal cortex, but it wouldn't do me much good if I localized it there, would it? Imagine playing a video game which shows you the code rather than the pixels on the screen. I'm bad enough at Call of Duty when I can see the terrain and the guy in the clown mask that's trying to kill me. Show me a lot of zeros and ones and I'm a good deal worse. Another feature of hearing might bring the point further to, to home, language. Try to hear spoken words in your own language such that you do not understand their meaning. 
Just listen to how the utterances sound in the raw without the concepts to which they refer. Good luck with that. The meaning of the words comes directly into mind. This is an excellent demonstration of my point because the meaning of words is purely conceptual. The word airplane is not a vehicle with wings and a propeller. It's just a symbol. So I've given you three independent modalities as examples to show that concepts interfere with our direct perceptions. This should give us pause as we consider to what degree we are experiencing reality on its own terms. The currency has been laundered. There is no way to follow the money back to its source. There's no big mystery as to why this should be the case. Evolution favors what works. Is the poison frog really bright red? It doesn't matter as long as I can see and identify the poison frog. Donald Hoffman makes an extreme argument on these grounds in his book, The Case Against Reality, in which he says, quote, To ask whether my perception of the moon is veridical, whether I see the true color, shape, and position of a moon that exists even when no one looks, is like asking whether the paintbrush icon on my graphics app reveals the true color, shape, and position of a paintbrush inside my computer. Our perceptions of the moon and other objects were not shaped to, re to reveal objective reality, but to disclose the one thing that matters in evolution, fitness payoffs. Physical objects are satisfying displays of crucial information about payoffs that govern our survival and reproduction. They are data structures that we create and destroy. The language of space and time, of physical objects with shapes, positions, momenta, spins, polarizations, colors, textures, and smells, is the right language to describe fitness payoffs, but it is fundamentally the wrong language to describe objective reality." Unquote. I wouldn't take this as far as Hoffman does, but there is something here worth considering. My objective today is not to consider the accuracy of our perceptions with regard to reality, though. I have something of a narrower focus. I asked, how much do concepts determine our perceptions? Given the case of the rubber hand illusion, concepts must be flexible. If they can be learned, then when did we begin to learn them? We must have begun to do so as infants. We started with some degree of inbuilt structure specified in the brain by genetics. Neurons proliferate in layers and extend their processes along grossly stereotyped plans. Interactions among the neurons begin to build new synapses and then to prune away the excess and unnecessary. Receptors on the skin ping signals up their spinal traps. The eardrums are vibrating away and sending raw data into the auditory brain. The eyes open and a new data stream rushes into the cortex. All of this must be a confusion of input for the young infant. Sensations unmoored by context or understanding. The infant feels the desire and is thus motivated to experiment with itself. It learns that it can tinker with its feelings to direct the movement of limbs, of the head, to bring things into focus with the eyes. This is like magic. How does one move a hand or one's eyes? I don't remember. But I must have enjoyed an experience of figuring out that very thing at some point in the past. Perhaps it made me giggle and smile with joy. Hour after hour and day after day we made discoveries by pure observation and experiment. We found regularities. We heard certain sounds and saw certain things which predicted upcoming events. I guess this is more or less how deep learning algorithms take shape. Each of the regularities which we began to observe became concepts as we learned them. Marvin Minsky wrote about this process in the Society of Mind. In the following section, he's talking about a computer program called Builder, which he and his colleagues developed in the 1960s at MIT to control a robot arm and build with blocks as children do. Minsky wrote, quote, 
In attempting to make our robot work, we found that many everyday problems were much more complicated than the sorts of problems, puzzles, and games adults consider hard. At every point in that world of blocks, when we were forced to look more carefully than usual, we found an unexpected universe of complications. Consider just the seemingly simple problem of not reusing blocks already built into the tower. To a person, this seems simple common sense. Don't use an object to satisfy a new goal if that object is already involved in accomplishing a prior goal. No one knows exactly how human minds do this. Clearly, we learn from experience to recognize the situations in which difficulties are likely to occur. And when we're older, we learn to plan ahead to avoid such conflicts. But since we cannot be sure what will work, we must learn policies for dealing with uncertainty. Which strategies are best to try and which will avoid the worst mistakes? Thousands and perhaps millions of little processes must be involved in how we anticipate, imagine, plan, predict, and prevent. And yet all this proceeds so automatically that we regard it as ordinary common sense. But if thinking is so complicated, what makes it seem so simple? At first it may seem incredible that our minds could use such intricate machinery and yet be unaware of it. In general, we're least aware of what our minds do best. It's mainly when our other systems start to fail that we engage the special agencies involved with what we call consciousness. Accordingly, we're more aware of simple processes that don't work well than of complex ones that work flawlessly. This means that we cannot trust our offhand judgments about which of the things we do are simple and which require complicated machinery. Most times each portion of the mind can only sense how quietly the other portions do their jobs. Unquote. That really is true, isn't it? We think that simple things are hard and hard things are simple. Recognizing a face is hard, but not for you and me. The secret is we have no idea how we do it. Algebra is comparatively hard, but we know exactly how we do it in just a few concrete steps. We know how we do it, and we have to do it manually. Imagine teaching a robot to ride a bike or swim. I wouldn't even know where to begin instructing a literal-minded rules machine to do such a thing. It would be a lot easier to teach the robot to play chess. Chess is harder than riding a bike, right? Well, maybe not. I can ride a bike easily, but I don't strictly know how to ride a bike. I know how to play chess, by contrast, and yet I'll lose the game against a basic computer chess program. The upshot is, I'm better at things I don't know how to do. The conclusion to draw from this is pretty radical. The more experience we have with perceiving things, with moving our bodies around, with making observations about the environment, the further removed we must be from the raw sensory data. We've long forgotten how to distinguish colors and shapes, how to move our fingers and our tongues, how to put together a thought. These things are happening beneath the conscious layer, and we just get the final product. Given Donald Hoffman's analysis, and even allowing that he could take his argument too far, how much can we trust that the content of our minds is showing us the truth? Perhaps as infants we saw things how they are, and we were appropriately confused. A lot of swirling sensory data. We aren't confused anymore, are we? Everything inside the matrix is just as it should be.